the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Back in 2009, a small herd of bison was relocated from Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas. The goal was not only to restore an essential foundational species of wildlife that had not grazed on those lands for more than a century, but to also reestablish the unique ecological benefits bison bring to the landscape while preserving the genetic integrity of the species. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. In this week's podcast, the traveler's Lynn Riddick takes us to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas and chats with Park Superintendent Kristen Hayes to see how this special conservation herd has been faring. Oh, and if you missed my piece on Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve back in July, you can download it. It's episode 178, wherever you get your podcasts. In that episode, interpretive ranger Eric Patterson walked me through the tall grasses and described the history and ecology of this special preserve. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Our friends at Interior Federal Credit Union offer bill pay, a free service in digital banking that allows you to pay your utilities, credit cards, and other bills, as well as track your payments quickly and securely. You can schedule exactly when you need your payments sent and whether to make a one-time or recurring payment. It's convenient and good for the environment. To sign up, log into online banking, choose bill payment from the top tab, and follow the instructions to register. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on their homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. At National Parks Traveler, we like to think that our articles and podcasts inspire people to come out and see parks that they may not have thought of before. And in fact, a podcast that our editor Kurt Repenschek did in July about Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in East Central Kansas inspired me to come here to see the varied grasses at their maximum height. I was really interested after listening to Kurt's piece and it wasn't too difficult of a trip a flight into Wichita, and then an 86-mile drive to the preserve. And so here I am, and today I specifically wanted to learn about bison and the bison herd here. So I'm here with the park superintendent, Kristen Hayes. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to The Traveler. 
Hi, thank you. Welcome to Tallgrass Prairie. Thank you. It's great so far. Uh, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful October morning, a uh, slight breeze blowing, the grass is waving in the wind, and um, I've seen a few bison so far on this trip, and I wanted to talk to you all about that. So why don't we start, tell me the history of how bison were brought to the preserve. When the preserve was established in 1996, I believe the Park Service and, and other partners had a vision to bring bison eventually to the preserve. And in the park's planning process, they identified an area of the preserve for bison reintroduction. And in 2009, we started formalizing that reintroduction by um, writing a bison management plan, working with another park, uh, the Wind Cave National Park, uh, to try to get some bison. And we were fortunate enough in the fall of 2009 to bring, I believe, 13 bison from Wind Cave National Park here to Tallgrass Prairie to start our herd. How many bison are here now? Uh, you know, we don't have an exact count, and we won't until we um, get a closer look at them this fall, but they're 85 or so. Interesting, yeah. Um, yesterday, late in the day, I came out and was walking around, and I saw a herd off in the distance, safe distance, <laughs> and I counted with my binoculars about 48, 49, I think, and then I also could see a few scattered ones here and there. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what do you imagine this landscape was like and what the bison population was like in this exact spot, say, 150 years ago? Uh, I think the landscape probably looked very similar. So the species of plants that you see here, the hills, all that kind of stuff probably looked almost just like this 150 years ago. In terms of bison, you know, it's really hard to say. They clearly were here, and whether they stayed here for long periods of time or just large herds came in and took advantage of the grasses or whatever and then left, you know, I don't really know if we know that for sure, but but yeah, we would have it would have been connected to all the other prairies out west and so those animals would have been moving through in their bigger herds. Do you have evidence of, you know, old bison wallows or bones or anything like that? that you there found? are some bison wallows. There are actually several old bison wallows on the park and probably throughout the Flint Hills. And there are also some old bones that archaeologists have found, like in the creek bank and things like that. Yeah, and I want to talk about wallows in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so what's involved with managing a herd? Um, what's the park's role and what's the role of the Nature Conservancy? So, yeah, so we co-manage the herd with the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy actually owns the land they're on, and they own the bison themselves. And we assist them in doing whatever they may need to manage this herd for a visitor resource and for to help conserve this prairie. They probably make more of the direct decisions when it comes to managing the animals uh, from year to year, and we just provide our input and assistance as needed but uh, we are we consider ourselves joint managers of the bison herd. Well I was curious about um, things that are done during the management of bison. Are they tagged? Are they chipped? Are they vaccinated? Um, you know what kinds of things does the conservancy do with that? 
uh, they'll do a little bit of everything. We definitely chip and we tag. And that's so we can keep track of animals, you know, who the parents of calves are, for instance. Or if uh, they need to remove some animals from the herd, they'll know exactly which ones, you know, need to leave. And um, then in, they, we disease test for some things. Uh, we're in the middle of cattle country, so we just want to make our neighbors, you know, set their mind at ease that we're keeping track of the health of our bison. Um, and, and then in some cases, they will vaccinate if they feel like there's a need for a certain vaccination at a certain period of time. So Interesting. I want to talk a little bit more um, about disease in a minute, but first, um, how much range and grazing space do bison need generally? I think, you know, if you were really trying to mimic the, the, the wild bison, they'd need more than we have. Our herd is currently on about 1,100 acres. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Here comes a bison. Uh-oh. Uh, what's the protocol? He is 20 feet away yeah, and getting closer. He's coming to check and see what we got going on, but maybe we'll uh, go ahead and load up for the time being. Yeah, and sure. So I'm gonna... go to a different load. Maybe we'll go out of their pasture. Okay, I'm going to turn the recorder off now while we get into That's the fine. car. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> Surprise. He really snuck up on us. Yeah, I really didn't think that one individual would come bug us, but so... Well, it's better that one came versus the true. whole herd. <laughs> so the reason he's coming and bugging us is because we'll be rounding them up here pretty soon to do that management and train them to a feed truck so we lead them into the pens. So now when they see a vehicle, and that process is starting because we're going to round them up in a month. So you got to get them all trained. And so now they're like, ooh, a vehicle, oh, there's food. That's why, that's why he's coming up. So. Well, uh, we couldn't have planned that uh, more perfectly, I guess. Uh, uh, and we're driving up. Yeah, ideally, that wouldn't be way. happening. And if you were uh, going to a, another park, that probably wouldn't happen at all. It's just TNC's a little more um, active in the management than National Park Service is. So. I'm just going to leave with the pasture. That way we just don't have to worry about it. And, you know, to reiterate, TNC is the Nature Conservancy. Yes. And the road we're driving on is uh, just for foot traffic as far as visitors are concerned. The, the park folks can drive up here, but typically you won't have a visitor driving a truck or an SUV that might um, give a bison the idea that he's about to be fed. Exactly. So now we're coming into a fairly large herd, probably the same herd I saw late yesterday. I mean, probably. Uh, Most of the animals stick pretty close together and then you'll have those ones. Yeah, I wondered if they uh, all bunch together, you know, on a regular basis and or whether the herd split up into two large herds or four smaller herds or you know the, what their habits were the bulk of the herd here anyway stays together but you'll have we kind of call them those teenage bulls so you'll have smaller groups of young bulls off on their own and then you'll have some big mature bulls that'll be by themselves so you'll have groups of bulls or individual bulls um, but most of the rest of the herd sticks pretty close together throughout the year 
it's really fascinating. I saw a couple, I, I guess a mother and her calf coming coming at us, like uh, they were hopeful also that mm -hmm. we were going to provide food. Yep. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, the Nature Conservancy and others have learned it's a little easier to to try to bait them in. I'm going to go through the gate because oh, okay. otherwise they'll come see us. Okay. So. okay, well, we've resumed our <laughs> our interview. We've driven through the gate into, this is called Big Pasture? It is Big Pasture. Okay, yes. so uh, the bison are on the other side of the cattle grate, and we're looking out at, how many would you say there? probably say 30 or 40 of them maybe 30 or 40 so yeah. it's just a beautiful scenic vista a lot of clouds in the sky the sun trying to peek through some rays coming down and just a uh, beautiful picture of wild bison on the prairie so going back to what we were talking about about how much space bison need to roam and how much land do they typically cover in a day they seem to take a bite and take a step kind of thing. So they do a pretty good job of covering their entire pasture, which is, you know, about 1,100 acres. Um, and it's stocked based, there, the number of animals in there, there's, there's enough forage to, you know, supply those animals. So if you had more animals, you'd want more acres, obviously. But yeah, they, they move around quite a bit. They won't be in this spot here probably, you know, an hour from now. Yeah, I've seen bison herds before, of course, in other national parks, um, but it was only yesterday that I noticed how quickly they move. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? they just, they do not stay, just, I mean, they'll sit down and rest every once in a while, chew their cud, that kind of thing, but they're not there for very long, usually. How pure are the bison genes in this herd? Do you know if there are any um, bison with residual cattle genes? There are likely some residual cattle genes. Um, we haven't done, you know, it, it depends on how hard you look, I guess. So we've done some genetic testing um, using mitochondrial DNA, and there's no evidence of cattle introgression is what they call it. So the cattle genes in the mitochondrial DNA, as in, and that's the same as the wind cave herd. However, it's likely there are still some cattle DNA and the nuclear or some of the more advanced genetic sampling will probably find that out but it's so so small that those cattle traits you're not seeing them in the bison they still look and act for the most part like a wild bison um, it's just that that history of how how we have bison today includes a cattle portion and most of the herds out there today have some evidence of that history so. Right, just to back up, you know, years ago, 150 years ago, bison were bred with cattle, and that residual genetic blending is still present in yes. bison today, and it's the intention of many conservation herds to um, purify the bison so that they don't have the cattle genes anymore. Is that Did I explain that correctly? Uh, yeah, I don't know if... You know, it, it probably depends on the individual conservation group. But in our case, they are what they are. We're not looking to remove, you know, cattle genes necessarily. They're not, what would be in these animals is not deleterious to the animals. They didn't get something bad from the cattle thing. So you might actually lose more 
um, more genetic diversity or those types of things by trying to get rid of that than to just keep it and let them be what they are. So, But there may be some instances where the amount of cattle introgression or cattle genes may be to some extent not valuable to the bison and maybe they, those types of herds or those herd managers may decide, eh, I don't want that and they might try to remove those animals. Okay, I wanted to go back to disease. Mm -hmm. uh, is that an issue here on the prairie um, in the National Preserve? And what types of diseases might you see? Uh, you can see similar diseases in bison that you see in cattle. And at this point here at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, we do have a, a, a disease called Mycoplasma bovis which is a respiratory, primarily a respiratory infection, and it can be really hard on bison. And so we're working with wildlife vets and others to try to figure out how to, you know, maintain a healthy herd. So, but yeah, it, cattle and bison are very similar, so they share similar parasites and diseases and all that kind of stuff. And you always hear about brucellosis, whether that's a legitimate concern of ranchers that operate near bison herds in other national parks and whether that's spread by bison i think those are things that are debated uh, what do you know about that well um i know that um the cattle industry is concerned about it and so what we do here is we test for it and because the nature conservancy you know ends up selling these animals they'll actually vaccinate the bison um, for brucellosis as well. Um, but Kansas is brucellosis free, so there's really no reason to believe that we would have it any more than anybody else. But because we know it's a concern of, you know, other ranchers in the area, and this is a ranching landscape, uh, we try to do our best to ease their concerns. So when a bison dies, what do you do with it? Nothing. <laughs> if we can, you know, I mean, if it was right on the trail, we might move it just because some people may not want to see that but otherwise we let nature take its course and let coyotes and vultures and whoever else need a meal have it so does that happen very often uh not usually now you know with our mycoplasma bovis outbreak we've had a a few more die um but typically yeah no it's one or two maybe a year and and maybe not even that some years so, so Tell me about the use of the preserve's bison as a satellite herd to protect genes. Yes, so Wind Cave National Park has a, a unique genetic diversity in their herd, and, and their park is simply not large enough to have a population size to maintain that. So they can't have enough bison to protect their diversity, so to speak. And so what Wind Cave has done is partnered with other conservation organizations, whether the Nature Conservancy or states or, um, you know, other folks like that to, in essence, increase their herd size by sending their animals to these other locations. And we, they, they're called satellite herds. Should something catastrophic happen to the Wind Cave herd, Wind Cave could theoretically build their herd back up based on those satellite herds that are out and about. So they could reach out to, you know, parks like us or other nature conservancy properties or states or wherever their other animals have gone and request to get some some of their animals, so to speak, back to Wind Cave. That's interesting. A little insurance, I guess. Y yes, exactly. 
So there are bison herds in a number of national parks, of course. Um, any thoughts on which herds you know, you've learned the most from or the Nature Conservancy has learned the most from uh, in managing the bison here in this particular landscape? I think that most of the national park herds are on, lot, on significantly larger landscapes, so they manage differently than we do. So I would say that the local Nature Conservancy staff and the local Park Service staff have probably learned more from the Nature Conservancy side of managing because they have several herds and they tend to be on smaller landscapes than, you know, Badlands, for instance. So, and, and therefore, I think we, our herd is managed more like a na Nature Conservancy herd than a Park Service herd. So it seems to me by looking at the map that you have two, oh, what's going on here? We see yeah, four bison just kind of running and chasing each other. Yeah, they're, they're, they're getting, beating each other up a little bit. So <laughs> just <laughs> trying to show who's boss, I think. Uh, anyway, so um, I noticed that you had two fields that were closed off for bison herds. Do you rotate them in other parts of the preserve? Uh, we don't at this point, at this time. So we, when we initially established the herd, we identified those two pastures. Um, windmill is their primary pasture, and then the little traps pasture is opened as needed, and then we use it for the, the roundup operations, the, the management operations. Um, there's the potential to increase to other areas of the preserve, um, but it's just not something we've moved forward with at this point. Okay. Yeah, I was curious, you know, why wouldn't you open up the whole preserve to bison yeah. if you could have, you know... Well, the preserve has an important cattle ranching story. So in, in addition to the, the natural resource that we represent, we represent that cattle ranching legacy. And so we want to be able to kind of maintain that and tell that story to our visitors as well. So the I don't ever see the entire preserve being all bison because that is an important story um, in terms of the West and, and just cattle ranching and, and, and actually maintenance of these, these prairies that we see. So um, the cattle ranching story will always be told here and therefore we'll not have bison everywhere. Part of the uh, Flint Hills, Kansas story. Yes, exactly, yes. This is Lynn Riddick and I am talking with Kristen Hayes, superintendent of the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas. And we'll be back after this short break. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, 
protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back now with Kristen Hayes, and we're talking all things bison here at the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas. Well, going back to cattle, how do you manage, or how does the Conservancy manage bison herds without treating them like livestock, um, the way they are rounded up and fenced in and tagged and chipped, vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of the livestock feel, but our herd is more of a 50-50 sex ratio. We let them do what they're going to do almost the entire year. And, you know, it's not like we're trying to make a bunch of calves so they can turn around and sell them and those kinds of things. We're trying to, for the most part, let the bison be like a natural bison herd and where maybe some of the more intensive management where it more closely matches some of the cattle management would be some of that disease testing and perhaps vaccinations and those types of things. Um, Some of the, or probably many of the other park herds and um, other herds across the country may not do some of that testing and vaccination, Um, but we do again because we're in the middle of cattle country and trying to keep our herd healthy and then reassure our neighbors that we're not we don't have a sick herd so this question might be better for the you know uh, nature conservancy but i'll ask you um so when bison are culled from this herd what factors are considered are they relocated to other parks or you know what generally happens so when when we're looking to remove animals We look and see, for instance, if we've had a dominant bull that's bothered most of the calves. So he may be cold because we don't want a lot of inbreeding going on. So we look at the genetics, see who mom and dad is, and make sure that we don't have too much inbreeding going on because that will weaken your herd over time. Um, And then when it comes to the young animals that we remove, it's pretty much random. They each have numbers associated with their tags, and we pull those out of a hat, and and that's who goes. And we know, you know, we try to maintain the 50-50 sex ratio as close as we can. So some years there may be more bulls that go or more cows or heifers that go, that kind of thing. It just depends, you know, on the year. So, uh, and then in terms of where or how they um, send the animals, 
if there are conservation groups that are interested, they usually will work directly with the Nature Conservancy, and, and you know, they're all, all about that. Nature Conservancy is very interested in conservation of bison, in addition to landscapes. And, and then if not, then they have their routes. They, there are multiple nature conservancy herds that tend to work together in terms of um, getting rid of excess animals. So, and that, yeah, that probably is a better question for the nature conservancy. But they've donated animals to uh, one of the zoos in the state. You know, they, they're, they're more than willing and, and would really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, work and, and, and ensure these bison continue the conservation story somewhere else. So... Do you know whether they are relocated to Native American lands um, for tribal management or whether um, the, the bison are, are put down, killed? I do believe that they are working with tribes. Um, I don't know the details of all that. I think nationally they are, and then I think individual bison herds within the Nature Conservancy are as well. I've just kind of heard some stories being in on some of the talks with the Nature Conservancy um, and then some of the others, yeah, I, you know, uh, they sell them and they may, I, who knows where they end up, you know, they don't necessarily follow them. The Nature Conservancy, or at least our animals that I know of, I don't, you know, it's not like our local folks are sending them to slaughter. So it's just whether, yeah, whatever that happens through the TNC route, so... So do you track these through their tags and chips? Do you have a software program or something that gives you a visual on a computer screen? There is a software program, yeah. So they'll each have their, they have their implanted tag, and then they've got a couple other tags related to other things, and all that is tracked. So we know, you know, which bull had which calf, for instance, or, you know, fathered which calf, that, that kind of thing. So we can track who's who. Does it show you, like, all the places they're roaming in the preserve? Uh, well, th that software doesn't. However, we do have some some animals out here that have GPS collars on them, and we're working with the USGS to kind of get a sense for where they're moving about the pasture, but that's only, like, five animals. But that still should give us a pretty good idea of how they're using their pasture and, you know, if it changes throughout the year, those kinds of things. Yeah, that would be interesting to see, mm -hmm. definitely. It's kind of a miracle um, that without the help of really just a handful of individuals that bison are still existing on this continent because, as you know, they were virtually wiped out. You know, they bring important ecological benefits that I want you to address. And someone said to me, well, why do we need bison? And, you know, I kind of know, but I would like to know what you would have said to that question. Um, I think, you know, bison, I think they're very charismatic. They, they are, you know, the national mammal. I think they represent, you know, the American West. So there's the, the, just that interest there. But I think on a landscape, such as ours, they're they're critical to maintaining it and kind of keeping everything together. They tie everything together. So the way they develop wallows on the landscape, or the way they graze and create these these short grass grazing lawns across the pastures, opens up habitats or creates habitats for different species. When they shed birds and other animals are able to use their hair for nesting material or, or those types of things. So I, I just think, 
I, I really like what they do on the prairie, and I, I can't really articulate that well. They do something a little different than cattle, and the the vegetation and wildlife seem to thrive in that, and, 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 and they just do something a little different. So it looks their pasture looks a little different than the cattle pastures, and, and, and like I said, I can't really articulate that very well. And then, you know, from a national park standpoint and from Tallgrass Prairie, the, the visitor experience, the opportunity for people to come out here and see them and see them on a native grassland, I think is really, really important. Well, as we've been talking the last few questions, there's been some snuffling and snorting in the background. And that's because we've got, I don't know, 40 or 50 bison just about 20 feet away on the other side of the cattle grade. So it's kind of a thrill to see. I mean, you know, they are definitely thinking we're going to feed them, I guess. How do you prevent them from getting too tame? Or too, I guess, acclimated to humans? So we try to um, minimize our interactions with them as much as possible. So we, right now, they're more interested in us because we're trying to train them to the feed trucks so we can lure them into the pens when it's time to um, tag and test and do all that kind of stuff. But once that's done, we'll stop that. Um, and then if for the most of the year, they they won't even, they'll look at you because you're in their way kind of thing. But other than that, they're, they're not concerned with people for the most part. So, um, but yeah, this time of year, they're, they're, definitely interested because we're trying to get them trained up and they get a little treat when the feed truck comes out. So that's and what, what how often do you do the roundups and when is the next one going to be? Uh, we're planning one for this November, early November. Um, and typically we do them, you know, about yearly, but it depends on the number of animals. So if we need to get rid of some because the herd size is getting too big, then that's when we'll do them. Do you work them through shoots uh, and yes. just like cattle? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, more extensive because bison are so strong um, but uh, yeah it's for the most part it's similar to a cattle setup. Let's talk about bison wallows. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me about them because I think it's kind of interesting and when you don't when you don't know what they are you don't know what you're seeing but once you understand what they are you start seeing a lot of them. Yeah so we've got several you know, historic bison wallows uh, on the park. And they're essentially little depressional wetlands at this point. So historically, bison moved through, and for whatever reason, they found an area where they would rub the dirt loose, and then they'd roll in it. And just as you get a bunch of animals that continue to rub and roll and stomp on it, they 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 compress that soil to where at some point they start holding water. They're a depression and then they that soil's packed so tight that it holds water. And so you can see that on our landscape, especially in the spring when there's rains, because you'll come across areas where there are just these little shallow oval-shaped things for the most part that are holding water. Um, now in the current bison pasture there are historic ones and they'll hold some water but they've also made some new ones as well and yeah they'll they'll be more like just exposed dirt and you'll see them out there rolling around and, and rubbing it and kicking it and stomping on it that kind of thing um, from a wildlife perspective you know the little wetlands are probably providing food and water to the terrestrial 
um, animals, birds, and whatever ever else is around. And then um, there may be some aquatic uh, invertebrates and, and even aquatic vertebrates for that matter, frogs and other types of things that probably take advantage of those wetlands. Um, and then the dry ones, you know, there are probably other wildlife that'll forage on the exposed dirt and that type of thing. So we've driven out to the northern part of the park and Kristen is going to point out some of the old uh, bison wallows. Yeah, so this is one, we're standing in the middle essentially of an old bison wallow. Um, and one way we can tell is it's a, a little lower than the surrounding area. So when it rains, it holds water. And we know it's, it's not wet now, but we know it held water because there are a bunch of cattle hoof prints that still are here, even though it hasn't rained for probably a month. So cattle we know it was muddy. Prints, not bison? Yeah, these are cattle. We're in a cattle pasture right now. So this is an old historic bison wallow. We also know that it holds water because some of the vegetation out here um, tends to like uh, this wetter area. Even though it's not wet the entire year, it's wet long enough that it keeps some of these other drier species out and you tend to see wetter species. So it looks a little weedier, looks a little different than the surrounding. There's not as much grass in it um, because those grasses aren't wetland grasses. They're, you know, they prefer the drier soils or, or regular type soils. So, but yeah, I mean, looking down at it, you can see, oh yeah, this was muddy at some point during the year. But you might not, looking across the landscape, necessarily pick it up except in the spring when it would have water in it and you'd see that. Can you identify some of the vegetation that's growing here? Some of it. So there's uh, western ragweed. Uh, so hopefully you don't have any allergy issues. Oh yeah, I do. But I took Pfizer <laughs> Tech this some morning. Some barnyard grass, and this is buffalo burr. That's just a weedy. Yeah, big. Right yeah, there. that's it. Yeah, with buffalo big, burr. Yeah, and they'll have the big, big cockle burr things that'll stick on you. They'll, they'll turn brown at some point. Yeah, there's not a, most of it's barnyard grass and some other weedier species, not the native stuff that's around us. You can see the line of asters that goes around at the probably heath aster that's around at the white stuff. Clearly oh, yeah. they don't like the wet area because it's just around the, the edge of the, the wallow. So they'll come up so far and then when it's too wet they don't do their thing. So Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, you might not notice these things, but when you point them out, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do see yeah, the, yeah. the it's white It's very aster. subtle. Now, if you we were in the bison pasture and we were in an actively used wallow, you would see it because it, this would be just a circle of dirt. Right. Um, but out here in these old ones, I mean, it's been, you know, 100 years or whatever since bison were out here. Um, they, they just they tend to blend in more closely with the area of vegetation. But when you get out in them, it's like, oh, yeah, this is different. And that's really interesting to think about and contemplate, too, that, you know, 100 years ago, there were wild bison all over this land, as evidenced by these bison wallows and what we know about the Great Plains. And uh, it, it's sad to think that they're all gone now, but, but good to know that, that there are people like the National Park Service and other conservation groups that are interested in, in preserving the species and growing the species. Yes, it's, it's, it's good to know that they're still around, and there are a lot of partners in that bison community, um, you know, from the private industry on to the federal government and everywhere in between. And, and because of all that, bison are still here today.
Well, Kristen Hayes, thank you so much for your time. This has been super interesting and especially interesting because the bison have been coming on cue. They've participated, <laughs> yes. No, so, well, thank you for coming. So. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you and we wish you the best. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'm joined by contributing editors Kim O'Connell and Lynn Riddick to discuss The Traveler, what our mission is, where we hope to take The Traveler, and why we need your support to ensure ongoing editorially independent coverage of national parks and protected areas. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.